Hello, everyone. Welcome to Solidarity Is This. I'm your host, Deepa Iyer. Solidarity Is This is a monthly podcast where we explore how we practice solidarity at a time when bans, walls, and raids have become commonplace in the United States. Each month, I speak to people around the country, activists, organizers, artists, students, educators, and more, about how they are showing up for each other, how they're building shared values, and how their practices of solidarity are transforming themselves and their communities. You can subscribe to this podcast via iTunes or any other platform where you check out podcasts. You can also download the Solidarity Syllabus at www.solidarityis.org, which contains information and resources for each episode of Solidarity Is This. This is the June episode of Solidarity Is This, and it's called Faith Matters. I'm taping this podcast as the holy season of Ramadan is ending for Muslims around the world. It's also been a month since the 70th anniversary of Nakba Day, which remembers the Palestinians who were expelled from their homes when the State of Israel was created. Here in the United States, we're witnessing an increase in attacks against people of faith and institutions of faith. Vandalism and violence are targeting mosques, synagogues, Sikh gurdwaras, and Hindu temples. Many of us often wonder if the Trump administration's goal is to make this country a whites-only, Christians-only nation. You'll remember that after taking office last January, President Trump implemented the Muslim ban to bar people from Muslim-majority nations from entering the United States. And in fact, as we tape this podcast, we're seeing the news that this administration's spokespersons are justifying a policy to separate children from their families using biblical scripture. At the same time, places of worship and communities of faith have been sites of conscience and action, where people hear messages of love, community, unity, and shared values. So my question on this podcast, how can institutions and people of faith cultivate solidarity practices and social change? To help us with this discussion, we have two guests joining us. First up, I'm speaking with Reverend Tuhina Verma Rash. And then you'll hear from spoken word poet, Bedir Muhammad Osman. Tuhina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Reverend Tuhina Verma Rush is ordained in the Evangelical Lutheran Church. Her work focuses on dismantling white supremacy. And she makes no bones about saying that straight up in the first paragraph of her bio. And she also <laughs> engages in conversations on the complexity of identities. Tahina blogs at This Lutheran Life and Medium, is a contributing writer to the Salt Collective, and tweets at at T-V-R-A-S-C-H-E, and we'll have all of that information in the Solidarity Syllabus so you can look up her amazing transformative work. So Tahina, welcome again to Solidarity Is This, and let's start off by asking you, how does a South Asian woman raised in a Hindu household end up becoming an ordained Lutheran minister? And I'm really realizing we have like a short amount of time to tell this very big story. (laughs) So I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado. And in the 1980s, there really wasn't a big Hindu population in Denver. Mm -hmm. From time to time, we would do pujas at home. So that's kind of like how I grew up in my faith community was my mom, my dad, and my brother. And I remember the epics that my mom would tell me as bedtime stories, but Amayana, the Mahabharata, 
But it was weird because I had this disconnect with it. Like I did it because my parents told me to. Mm-hmm. And it just wasn't anything that resonated in my body. It was just what I knew, but it's not what I felt. And I started to go to church when I was in college. And it wasn't like worship services. It was just a group of students that hung out in the church's lounge once a week. And I ended up going. The pastor was great. He's like, I'm not out to convert you. And I'm like, okay. Like, those being the first lines out of his mouth, it's like, I get to be me in this space. That's actually pretty cool. Because Mm -hmm. I have this idea of Christianity in the United States where people attach a Bible to a two-by-four and start beating you with it until you submit to Christianity. Yeah, how I ended up being a pastor is hilarious, because that is actually not the Christianity I experienced. The Christianity I experienced is that you look out for your community, you look out for your people, and the definition of your people for me as a Christian is actually all of God's creation. It doesn't matter if you are Buddhist or Muslim or Hindu or agnostic or atheist, like, you look out for your people. And you look out for your people so they can live the best life they can. You are someone who is also very connected to various movements around racial justice, immigrant rights. Um, and how do you incorporate some of that into the work that you're doing in your faith practice? And why is that so important as a strategy to build um, solidarity or a shared understanding of what our commonalities are as people and our shared values? So for me, um, particularly in movement work and interfaith work, and mm-hmm. this is this is really hard work where people's lives are literally at stake. Right. Um, people's lives are on the line, and so it it gets messy and it, it and it gets complicated. But the big thing is to stick with one another in the midst of this work. So, Tuhina, one other question I had is around the news of this week that Attorney General Jeff Sessions apparently used a piece of scripture from the Bible to defend the policy that the Trump administration has of separating families from each other, particularly even children from their parents when they seek asylum at the border. What do you make of that? I think Jeff Sessions should not be calling himself a Christian. I think him using scripture in this context Mm -hmm. to violently separate children from their parents is one of the most unchristian and barbaric practices that you could ever do. I think Jeff Sessions is manipulating scripture and like him using the scripture. This is not a Christian way. Like this is the opposite of the Christian way. Jesus said, bring the little children unto me. Jesus was for the poor, the sojourner, the widow, the child, the oppressed. Jesus was for the liberation and for the freedom of all of these peoples, not for their oppression, not for their incarceration. What do you make, though, of the fact that the Bible has been used as a tool to oppress people, right, in the past? Can you give us some examples of how that's been used? And can you tell us 
what it is that Christians and other people of faith can do to stand up against that narrative and that manipulation of what the Bible is. So let's take Romans 13. That is the verse that Jeff Sessions used to uphold law and order. The other times that this verse has been taken out of context has been to promote slavery in the United States, Mm. um, was also used in Nazi Germany. And yeah, it has really been used as a tool of oppression. It's been used as a tool to bind people, Mm -hmm. to incarcerate them, to enslave them, to jail them. But this is one verse out of the entirety of scripture. And if we ignore the entire arc of scripture and the entire narrative of scripture, we have completely missed what scripture actually means as a word of liberation, as a word of freedom, as a word of making the mountains low and the valleys high. So everybody can live into the fullness of who God created them to be, not to put them in death dealing situations. Mm -hmm. So what is it that you're telling the community that you're in service to What are you telling them to do? What are people of faith doing already about this particular policy? So there have been people of faith that are already mobilizing. They have been mobilizing for for months, even years, particularly around immigration rights. Mm -hmm. And so part of it is taking your body to a detention center, like Mm. going to an organized action, an organized protest, an organized demonstration, and showing up at places to show that you support the poor, the orphan, the child, the oppressed, the widow, those who are on the margins. Call your senators. And also, if your church has put out a statement, if your mm-hmm. denomination has put out this, um, a statement. And many have. Yeah, and many have. You know, that is wonderful. I think the church most certainly has something to say. But I also think even more so, the mm-hmm. church most certainly has something to do. The beginning of John's gospel says the word was made flesh and and came and lived among us. And the word made flesh is Jesus. And so as a Christian, I believe I am of a word made flesh. And if I see these statements from my denominations and other Christian bodies, then what are the words you're going to, what are the words that you're going to put flesh to? Mm -hmm. What are the words that you're going to embody to make sure that your neighbor in need is not incarcerated, is not oppressed, is not being treated like an animal. Mm -hmm. Because no human being, whether it be Christian, Hindu, Sikh, Muslim, should endure this. And it's interesting that you say that because we just recently got word that uh, 70 people of South Asian background were taken to a federal prison in Oregon after they appealed for asylum at the border. Mm -hmm. And uh, many of them are in need. They've been separated from their families. And as a South Asian woman, we've talked about your identity in the beginning, who is watching your own people being separated using the Bible, which Mm -hmm. is um, what you believe in. How does that make you feel? I feel sick that the scripture in which I place my um, in which I place like my teachings and mm-hmm. how I live my life is being used in such a way to incarcerate people that are from my ancestry. Right. You know, this is disgusting. How are ways in which you're kind of breaking out of some of the silos I think that often are created when we think about faith communities in this country? I think part of it is, you know, preaching to 
to people on a Sunday morning or whenever people do hear a message that it's not supposed to be a warm, fuzzy feeling, that love is really not just about liking people, but love is about taking huge risks for yourself and for the people around you, for the communities around you. It's not a big sense of like. Like within Christian teaching, there's this term called kenosis, where Jesus pours his entire self out for the love of the world. And so for me, that's kind of like an example of what are the ways that I can pour myself out in order for people to be free. I really like how you said that love is taking huge risks. And have you seen the church that you serve or the various different institutions that you're in, t- you're in contact with, right? What are some best practices that you've seen people undertake or institutions undertake when it comes to taking these risks at a time when, as we talk about a lot on this podcast, where people feel attacked in every aspect of their lives, their livelihoods, their humanities, and their rights. So can you give some examples of how those huge risks can be taken and how people can engage in solidarity practice as a strategy if they're part of a faith community? I think part of it is pairing secular with faith. I see like standing up for racial justice organizations and people of faith being involved in surge. Mm -hmm. I see interfaith work. And so one of the examples that I have is the Peninsula Interfaith Coalition on Immigration. And it's not just Christians, but it's also Buddhists and Muslims and people of all different faith traditions that are working together for immigration rights, particularly in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm also thinking about like ecumenical work, so like the World Council of Churches, which is like a really big umbrella. But I'm also thinking about just kind of like like the Poor People's Campaign and seeing people of faith getting really engaged in that and also people who have a secular view of the world, that they're getting together to work in this way. So within the Lutheran Church, we have Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services. And so finding ways to connect with organizations within people's own communities of faith is a way to partner together, to work together, because this work cannot be done alone. So I want to kind of summarize a little bit of some of the disruptions that you talked about, right? Where solidarity practice can show up within faith practices and and places of worship. So it's everything from what you said, these collaborations between secular and faith-based organizations or movement-based and faith-based organizations. Um, It's about showing up physically at events and rallies and the like. It's about opening up your place of worship to other communities. And even though that interfaith work is really challenging to create the space and to understand one's own privilege. You talked about including some of the issues that are happening around the country in uh, sermons and looking at the liturgical calendar and figuring out whether there are ways to incorporate and integrate. And then, of course, changing policies and practices of the church itself so that there is a way for there to be more synergy between the faith practice and the movement work. So that's a lot of really great information. And I was also thinking about there's a group in Queens or New York City called Sadhana, which is like a coalition of progressive Hindus. And one of the ways in which they 
made some change was to actually get the Hindu temple in Queens to declare itself a sanctuary for undocumented immigrants, mm -hmm. right? And that's something that churches have been doing for some time, but this is the first Hindu temple that declared itself a sanctuary. And I think that there are folks who are actually bringing these values in and, as you said, holding their places of worship accountable, but also moving into the space of solidarity. So I think that what you're doing and what other groups and people are doing around the country are really important ways of disruption and also bridge building that allow us to merge the faith-based work and the movement work in a way that can be really powerful for communities around the country. Because ultimately, we have so much to learn from one another, and we have so much that we can contribute to one another's communities as well. Well, thank you so much, Tahina, for being on the podcast. I feel like we talked about a whole range of issues, but we also identified some clear ways that folks can take action. And thanks for asking me to be here. I'm so honored. Thanks, Tahina. Now I'm excited to welcome our second guest to Solidarity Is This. Bayader Mohamed Asman is a recent graduate of American University where she studied public health. She was born in Sudan and raised in Laurel, Maryland, and she's also a member of Speak Fresh American University's SLAM poetry team. And that's how I actually had the chance to meet Bayader when she performed a powerful poem at a No Muslim Ban Ever rally outside the steps of the Supreme Court in April. I was really affected by your words, Bayader, and your presence, and I'm so glad that you are able to join me on Solidarities This. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to call in and speak to you. First, congratulations on your graduation. But tell us Thank how you. you identify yourself and how you came to doing your art and activism and really blending it with your faith as well. So I identify as a Black, Muslim, Sudanese, American woman and also African-American. So I feel that these identities I hold dear to my heart. And um, in terms of poetry and spoken word, I've just always enjoyed the craft of it. At first, you know, always as a kid, I loved listening to rap music. I loved how they made wordplay and rhyming and things like that. So I think it just became on an artistic form. And then after, during my experience in college, I got exposed to slam poetry, which adds more of a political lens to the art. So then after um, always, first two years, always going to open mics, going to poetry events, things like that, I decided to pick up the pen myself and uh, merge the two, as you would say. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit of some of your poetry with our audience. We can talk about the themes that you're writing about and performing on mm -hmm. as well. So I'm going to turn the mic over to you, so to speak. I'm going to recite the one that you got to hear. So, oh, great. Um, this one's titled Plane Ride. So if you have any questions about where it came from or my experience or anything, I'm so free to, el I'll so free to elaborate afterwards. So this one's titled Plane Ride. Mm -hmm. 19 years old, my first time flying alone across the borders for plane rides in a five-day period, nervous, scared, my heart booming out of my chest. Am I going to get lost in the airport? Am I going to get claustrophobic? Am I going to have a panic attack on this plane? The reality is I'm not allowed to feel fear on a plane. I'm what will cause the fear. I don't have the privilege to have anxiety. To tell the flight attendant or my neighbor, it's my first time alone. The privilege that I get if everyone on the plane will know I'm on the plane. All the officials at the gate will know of my presence. 
I said, y'all, they barely make it past TSA. Detours in the airport because I am double-checked, triple-checked. I have been drafted for a war that I did not want to be a part of. This war on terror began before I was born. Hijabis always in uniform, always on guard. My people always ready to be interrogated. The scariest battleground is the airports, the planes. Everything I've been training for is tested there. My life is boot camp with accusatory hands. My American passport is shield that doesn't protect me. My enlistment gets renewed every time I enter a new territory. Daily battles when entering a classroom or checking out a grocery store, riding the metro. No matter how hard I try to camouflage myself, they still find me. I get shot with microaggressions and stares and condescending smiles. Now, where are you really from? Your English is actually good. Don't you feel a little hot and restricted with that on? The words terrorists and oppressed are dropped like bombs. Every time there's an attack overseas, I feel the aftermath inside me. Arising from the smoke tragedy and a new recruitment of ignorance. The media makes smoke of my breath, providing ammunition for America to attack me with. Why do I need to have allies in my own country? Both sides see me as a traitor, us versus them, but which side do they see me on? They say, just take it off, that I can't take off the skin. They say, pull yourself up from your bootstrap. They don't know I have trenches from standing in this battlefield. A Facebook solution suggests, hashtag pray for peace. Don't they know me wearing a hijab is prayer? Don't they know the language of prayer isn't just in English? That it can sound like sound wrestling under kids dancing feet and sea whistles. Now, do they really want peace? Or do they want me to take off my hijab and wave it as a white flag? That's right. Wow. Thank you so much, Badia. I feel like we need like a couple of moments of silence for folks to really process and digest what you performed because I think it encapsulated and I feel the same way I felt when I heard you perform it live um, a couple of months ago because it encapsulates so many of the experiences that you know particularly Muslim communities have been facing in this country since before and after 9-11. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about why you used airplanes as the site you know that you first start with and can you expand on the themes of this, you know, double tracking, triple tracking, and being the subject of this war on terror in a domestic context. Why was it important for you to kind of encapsulate all of that in this particular poem? So to be honest, the way this um, poem started was I really was traveling by myself for the first time, and I was going all the way to Sudan, mm. which I had a week to go and come back. So that means in that period, I was really going to be on like six planes, and this is the first time I'm traveling alone. And overall, I'm a really anxious person. Anything makes me anxious. So I was just like, yeah, I'm probably going to be anxious on the plane. But then I had a moment where I was just walking in, and I realized I can't deep breathe. I can't make a scene. I can't freak out. I can't show any sign of nervousness because it's going to be perceived in a different way. And that was the moment where I had to check myself. I literally just did not have the privilege of having a panic attack if I, if I felt like I needed to have it or I mm-hmm. felt like my body was taking over me in any way. So that was when I had to process all that and I had to, I had to deal with it on my own while I was traveling. And the experience was, I mean... Nothing horrific happened, but, you know, I purposely, I remember traveling, and I purposely dressed up. And I told myself, if I dress up and if I look professional, they're going to treat me better. And that's, like, whole conversation about political appearance and things like that. 
So that's where the poem started from. But then I realized it's not just an airplane issue. It's not just an airport issue. It's something that I have to do all my life being a college student in a predominantly white institution and just being an American in general. You have to always coach, but you always have to present yourself in a way that is pleasing to people. I had to be palatable my whole life. I couldn't be just a Sudanese woman. I had to be a Sudanese American woman. Thank you for explaining sort of the genesis of the poem. I mean, you mentioned at the start of the conversation, Badia, that you see yourself as an, a Black Muslim woman. And I mm-hmm. think that a lot of times people really don't understand how, you know, one, the history of Black Muslims in this country, right? And then secondly, how being both Black and Muslim exposes you to, you know, double, triple forms of surveillance, violence, and profiling and discrimination. So can you talk a little bit about that and also, you know, how folks, particularly Black Muslims, are really organizing in their communities to raise awareness about these intersections and to push back on the oppression around both Islamophobia as well as anti-Black racism? I definitely feel that there is a triple disadvantage of times being both, because I know seeing something about an Islamophobic thing that happens, it affects me, but then turning on news and seeing a police killing or a black man being shot, that's something that both affects both of my communities. And it's, at times I couldn't even tell you which one affects me more. It's just, just as hurtful, just as difficult. I feel same apprehension or same hesitation to be around police officers sometimes, just as much as I feel being in the airport or being in a community that's very conservative. And I have been seeing the struggles that this community has in terms of including themselves in the Black Lives Matter movement. And sometimes we forget that Muslims are also Black. So I've seen the issues that have happened in both of in the Muslim community, mm-hmm. how they forget to support black issues and violence that's happened, for instance, in African countries, but how they're not included in the conversation. And it's something that I see in um my everyday life, um, being a college student and organizing for certain issues. Because I remember um even in my black community at AU, it was a, it was a great community, everyone Everyone was really supportive and all that. But then at times, I'd always, me and my other fellow uh, Black uh, Muslim peers, we'd have to always, like, consistently remind them, like, hey, what about us? Hey, could you support us? Mm-hmm. Hey, the Muslim ban is also a Black uh, people issue because it's affecting Black Muslims or Sudanese Muslims. So it's a consistent reminding of the people, reminding them and educating them. And it's, it's difficult to live in that type of intersection, especially yeah. when there's already racism in the Muslim community and Islamophobia in the Black community. And I think that there are, you mentioned a couple of different ways that folks are bridging those intersections and raising awareness. And I think that that's happening in several spaces, even in the Muslim, Arab, South Asian space post 9-11. I think that, you know, Black Muslims have often felt that their voices and perspectives and these double ways in which folks are oppressed don't show up, right? And so groups like um, Muslim Arc, I think, are doing a really powerful job of... Yes, Muslim Arc is a good example, yeah. And also, um, in the immigrant space, Black Alliance for Just Immigration is making those same points that you're making around, well, there are Black immigrants in this country who are dealing with the impact of deportations and the Muslim ban and the like as well. And speaking about the Muslim ban, you know, we're actually taping this podcast during the month where the Supreme Court is going to 
decide whether the ban is constitutional. That's also how we met on the steps of the Supreme Court. And I'm curious to know what your thoughts are. You know, if the Supreme Court comes out to say this ban is constitutional and upholds it, how do you think the communities can respond? Honestly, the most initial reaction to your question is, I don't even think it's a responsibility, just a responsibility for the people that's impacted by the ban. Mm. And the first thing that comes to mind is all the countries who aren't impacted, all the American, white, American, European people, I feel like allies or really are going to have to step up to the plate. I believe in my communities and I believe in our power to organize and things like that. But if we don't have the backing of the major of major communities here and populations, I don't know, is that a pessimistic answer? I was thinking that when you said that, it also led, it reminded me of a of something you said in your poem where you said, why do I need allies in my own country? Yeah. Obviously, this is a podcast on solidarity practice, right? So I'm curious to know, what do you mean by that question? Uh, why do I need allies in my own country? Tell me a little bit more about that and maybe as it relates to what, what we were just talking about around the Muslim ban. Yeah, I think for artistic reasons, I was playing off of the idea of like war and having countries as allies. Mm-hmm. But meaning the quote-unquote allies as a Muslim woman or as a Muslim black woman, that already shows you that this really is a war, that this really is this force versus this force. It shouldn't have to be like that. So unfortunately, that's what's needed. And I do recognize the necessity of having allies in order to stop, for instance, the Muslim men and other systematic things that are occurring and affecting my community, because I do recognize my voice isn't the majority one, and it isn't the one that's most respected currently, and it's the one that the media bashes and things like that. So I do, unfortunately, have to lean on my allies in moments like these. It's one of those things where we're, you know, we use the word allies and solidarity a lot, but, you know, the real practices, like you said, of checking in on each other, of uh, making sure that the most impacted and affected people aren't the only ones who have to speak up all the time and that, you know, others need to take up the same issues and the same causes. I think that that's a really important part of solidarity practice. So tell me a little bit about, you know, why going on this solidarity practice theme, how is art and poetry an important way to engage in solidarity practice? Have you seen that when you perform, for example, that you are connecting with people in a particular way that lends them to perhaps engage in greater solidarity practice? When I first started, it was just like my attention was to just take care of myself. Mm -hmm. But as it went on, I did realize that I was educating people and the best compliments would be the ones that come up to be like, wow, you made me think about something that I wasn't already thinking about. And that's when I know, that's when I know I did a good job because I'm playing poetry, there's like scores and points and teams. But I think the best ones would be, hey, that specific line reminded me of this. Hey, you helped me check my privilege. Hey, this. So I think definitely just be the light bulb moment. So I'm, I'm grateful to be in a craft that allows people to think of political issues and humanize them and have a one-on-one experience with somebody who's different from them. Well, it sounds like it's both transformative for yourself as well as those who listen to you, which is mm-hmm. extremely ideal, right? Because you're changing too as you're performing and writing and engaging with others. So I know that on campus, you were really involved with a lot of different organizations and spaces um, from the Muslim Students Association and Faith Spaces to, you know, like the Slam Poetry Team, and other forms of civic engagement. I'm curious to know, now that you are a graduate, if you can provide some advice for young people who might be listening to this podcast who are in high school or college, 
how can they in this particular political moment raise their voices, raise their awareness, check their privilege? Like you said, how can they get involved? What advice might you have for them? Educate. I think that's the number one thing that I would recommend for them is educate themselves Mm -hmm. before they start forming their own opinions on things and realize opinions or you're allowed to change your opinions. You're allowed to get, um, you're allowed to discuss with people and exchange ideas and some perspectives on things. I, I want to also remind them that nothing that they think or feel is permanent. There's certain values that you're 100% stuck on, but allow yourself to grow within these years within college and allow yourself to experience new things. And when I say educate, I mean educate yourself, go to different events, talk to different people, ask questions when appropriate. Don't just ask everybody questions. You know, research things yourself, look at historical um, background, and also engage in the arts, engage in arts, engage in sports, engage in all these different cultural ways in order to educate yourself. Yeah, being curious. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a lifelong lesson, you know, uh, not just Mm -hmm. for young folks in college, but for all of us. Thank you so much, so much, Badia, for being here. And um, Eid Mubarak in advance. And looking forward to seeing how your work and your poetry inspires so many more people. So thank you for, for sharing with us. Thank you. Thank you to both my guests, Baidir Mohammed Osman and Tuhina Verma Rash. I'm so grateful and I hope that all of you listening are as well for the opportunity to hear about their work and their perspectives and to learn from them. You can find more resources on the topics that we discussed over at www.solidarityis.org, where there are links to a solidarity syllabus for each of these podcasts. I'm ending the podcast today with a quote from Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., who seamlessly intertwined faith traditions with resistance and solidarity calls to action. At the March on Washington in 1963, and again in his speech at Riverside Church in 1967, Dr. King talked about what he called the fierce urgency of now. He said, We are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such a thing as being too late. This is no time for apathy or complacency. This is a time for vigorous and positive action. I know that each of us in our families, our own lives, our communities, our neighborhoods, and our places of worship are taking vigorous and positive action. Thank you for what you do. Together, we can create the ripples that will bring about the changes we desire and the liberation that we seek. Thank you again for joining me on this episode of Solidarity Is This. This is Deepa Iyer. I'll see you next time.